You are listening to How Bass Music Shaped British Society, a podcast series exploring the history of Jamaican sound system culture in Britain and how its legacy has revolutionised music, from sound, business and culture to people, preservation and society. My name's Janet Kay. Um, I was born in the late 50s. Um, I was born in Acton, Park Royal Hospital to be exact, and I was brought up in Wilsdon in my early years. Church was like a must in my household, although my dad never went to church, but my mum, we had to go to church. And I went to the um, Baptist church in Wilsdon Green, which is where my parents were married. And my grandfather was the deacon in that church also. Um, And not only did I go to church there, but I also went to girls' brigade. Anything that the church had was what I was allowed to go to. So I spent a lot of time in the Baptist church. Well, I started going to church from the age of about three. So I'd go with my aunts um, and I'd go to Sunday school there. Um, I'd sometimes come home with my granddad because he only lived around the corner. He lived in the next street from us. Um, So this is a very religious household. Not on my dad's part. On my mum's part, yes, but not my dad, because my dad didn't really go to church. He only went to church when he got married and when there was christenings, and that was it, really. <laughs> but my granddad was an avid church goer, obviously, because he was a deacon. So your early uh, memories of music and singing all come out of the church? Yeah, singing hymns. I love singing hymns. How, or to what extent, was this the norm within your community, so in terms of your peers, your friends at this point? Well, all my friends, because across the road from the Baptist church was a school called St Andrews, which is where I went. So a lot of my friends went to the same school as me, went to the same church as me, went to Girls' Brigade with me, um, because it was all, so it was a small little community. So take us to when, um, your early memories of reggae. It was my dad's records. We put the, 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 my dad had loads of records. I remember the Blue Beat label. Um, and, it, you know, it was playing the music on the gram and that sound that you get from the gram. And, you know, there were certain songs that I, that I liked that I'd play all the time. Um, and we were lucky that my dad allowed us to, pl- to play it because some families, you, could, you weren't allowed to, really. Um, so yeah, so that's what I remember from back in the day and going to, you know, auntie's parties and that. We never had parties in our house because my mum didn't allow it. So by the time I got to my teens, we'd moved from Wilsdon and we went to live in Barnet for a while. And back then, in the early 70s, like 1970, 69, 70, there were no black people that lived in Barnet. We were the only black family. We were the only blacks in the village. Yeah, we were the only black family in Barnet. So basically when I went to primary school, when I was still at primary school, no, actually, I, I went to Barnet in, at the age of nine and I was there till I was 14. So when we moved, we were the only black family in our primary school. Then I went to secondary school. I was the only black girl in an in a all-girl girl school. Mm. I was the only black girl in my secondary school. Um, and the only music other than my parents' music was pop music that I heard on the radio. So I was into, I, I liked Lulu, I liked the Beatles, I liked, um, who else was around at the time? Oh my goodness, I can't even think. But I liked a lot of the, the Dusty Springfield, a lot of those singers, um, Sandy Shaw, um, Tom Jones, 
Um, oh my goodness, what's her name? Flamboyant singer. Shirley Bassey. I liked all those singers. I liked singers. Um, I then decided in my mind that I wanted to become a performer, right? I used to, wa I used to love to watch um, the London Palladium and see all those variety shows. I remember when I was really small, I used to have this little red chair that I used to put up in front of the black and white TV when that was coming on. And I loved to just watch all these people performing. And in, your mi in my mind, you know, I'm sure most kids have dreams and aspirations of what they want to do, of, co of course they do, but they don't, you know, you don't know how that dream is ever going to materialise. So at, at the age of 11, when I started secondary school, I decided that I wanted to go for an audition for this junior, junior Showtime programme that used to come on TV, which was a children's talent show. And um, myself and a friend of mine called Jackie bought some, we went to, I think we went up to the West End and bought some sheet music um, for this song called Sole Sole. I can't even remember who the artist was and I don't remember why I even wanted to sing that song. And all I can remember is the chorus. I don't remember the verses right now. And we didn't have a clue. We weren't prepared for an audition. We, you know, I didn't know how to prepare for an audition, but we just went. And they had a pianist there and they took the sheet music from us and they played it, banged it on the piano and we sang without microphones and it sounded terrible and we didn't get through. And then later on in my teens, I think I must have been about 15. Yeah, I must have been 15 or 16, decided I wanted to enter Opportunity Knox. And the date came through, but I couldn't go because it was the date of my English exam. So that died a death as well. Um, I was always a member of our school group, always a member of our school choirs. We used to, um, you know, like all the schools in the borough used to get together and, and do these big concerts. So all the schools, and we had a school band and, you know, most of my close mates were in the, in the school band. So when I was at this school in Barnet, as the only black girl in the village, this sounds so bad. I mean, we used to have afternoon discos and um, this tune was rising to the top of the charts and it was Marcia and Bob, young, gifted and black. I'm telling you, that tune is what got me through that school, <laughs> seriously, because it made me feel like somebody. You know, I'd, I left school, got my job, happy in my job. And then one day my friend phones me up and she says, um, do you fancy coming to a rehearsal? So I said, what rehearsal? She said, well, um, Aswad, there's a band called Aswad and they rehearse in this record shop um, in Harrow Road. So I said, oh, okay, I don't mind. Yeah, let's go and see this rehearsal. See how it, you know, what, what, what goes on. So um, it was a record shop called Gangsterville. Gangsterville record shop in the Harrow Road. And at the back of the shop, they had like a room set up with all the instruments, the mics, everything. When we got there, there was nobody there yet. Everybody was late for rehearsal. And the mics were all live. And I'm in there, you know, messing about on the microphone, singing on the microphone, thinking, oh my God, that sounds nice. It's nice and loud. Ooh. And um, then Tony Gadd, who played keyboards at the time, came in and he overheard me when I thought there was no one listening. He was actually listening to me. And he was good friends with um, Alton Ellis. Alton Ellis, it turns out, was looking for a female artist to do a cover version of a track called Loving You by Minnie Ripperton. 
So Tony must have given him um, my deeds. I think it was a note or something, because we didn't have, I can't even remember exactly how this, how it happened, because we didn't have mobile phones then. I think it was probably all done by letter or something. So anyway, so I went home and I said to my parents, you know, I've been invited to, um, to go to the studio and do a recording. Can I go? Well, I come, my, my parents were very Victorian, and if I wanted to go out with a boy, for instance, that boy would have to come to my dad, like weeks before he wants to take me out, to ask his permission and sit down in front of my dad and, and please, don't come in jeans, because if you do, <laughs> it's not happening. <laughs> right. And um, they said to me, no, 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 you're not, you're not going. We don't, you, we don't know this man. You're not, go you're not going anywhere with any man we don't know. I'm like, but it's a studio. They were saying no. And after about a week, two weeks, I kept pleading. They said, well, the only way this is going to happen is if this Alton Ellis, you know, if this Alton Ellis comes to the house and asks your dad permission. And that's exactly what happened. Alton came to my house to meet my parents. He was allowed in the front room and I wasn't. <laughs> and they, you know, my dad questioned him and asked him and blah, blah, blah. And at the end, they said, yeah, we're going to allow you to go.
what? I don't, to be honest, I don't even know, and I can't ask him now because he's passed away. So I wasn't even sure, and I didn't, ask the, I didn't even ask the question because I was just happy that he allowed me to go. And, you know, I thought this was going to be such a big, exciting experience and this studio was going to be, you know, glorious and wonderful and I bought a new dress to wear and, and I ended up sitting in a corner on the floor. It was just crazy. <laughs> As I said, it was, you know, it was Chalk Farm Studios in um, Camden Town. And it just, it just wasn't what I expected. But I went with the opportunity because it was a, a great opportunity. Um, and while I was in the, you know, while I was in the studio, I did the recording, that, that recording. And then I was asked to do another song, which I didn't even know at the time. That turned out to, it turned out to be a, a, a duet between myself and Alton. I'm still in love with you, boy. And all I knew was the chorus. I didn't, <laughs> didn't know anything else. I, mean, I had no idea of what I was in, who I was with, who I was around. I had Aswad that played, that they played the backing track, Drummy was on the drums, Tony, I can't remember if Tony, Tony played the keyboards, but he probably played the bass as well. Um, you know, so they're all prominent musicians, um, but I was totally unaware of any of it. You well, know. Here's, here's another question, were you impressed? Unaware, but impressed with where you were? I was, I just wasn't as impressed because it wasn't as grand as I thought it was gonna be. So, having had that initial experience, did it in any way put you off, or was it exciting enough to encourage you to want more of this experience? I wanted more of the experience. I mean, it, back, back then when you recorded a tune, you know, it could be out on the street the next week, the next day, you know, and playing on, on the radio. And we only had one radio station at the time, one radio show that played reggae music, which was on a Sunday afternoon with Tony Williams that I remember. I mean, there was Steve Bernard, but I can't really remember Steve Bernard's show. It was Tony Williams was, was the one that I remember. And so it was exciting to hear yourself on the radio. It's like, oh my God, I'm made. They're actually playing my song on the radio. This is me. I can't believe it. It was that kind of... So what was the response from first your peers, your friends, and what was the response from your parents? How did it resonate back in the home? Um, it was good because Sunday afternoons we'd be sitting there eating our rice and peas and chicken and drinking our carrot juice and things. And, and then you hear the record on the radio. It's like, Kay, because my family, they, I'm not known as Janet in the household, I'm known as Kay in the household. Kay, is that you? That's my brothers and sisters. Oh, that sounds really good. Oh. And my mum, yes, it's good, but you must keep your job. You know, it was that kind of thing. And my dad was silently proud, you know, he, he, he's silently proud, very, he's had that look, you know, it was good. So, at this point, uh, there is just a spark of an alternative career uh, happening. Was there concern now as to, should you be taking this seriously um, on your part, and should you be taking it seriously on the part of your peers just to get that kind of feedback? I wasn't in a hurry to give up my job because I actually enjoyed what I was doing. And to be honest with you, there was no financial gain for me, you know, when I was doing the music in the early days. You know, I was doing, I was recording because I loved it. I was recording because I loved singing. Um, 
And so that was what was driving me. It wasn't about the money at that time. So, and let's just deal with this at this point, then we can move forward. There was no financial gain, but did anyone in the community or your immediate surroundings go, but there ought to be some financial gain? Was there any question that this music's going out, your voice is on it, and there is no financial gain? So um... Or was being on the record just sufficient? I think, in the, I think in the early days, it was sufficient reward for me. But I did expect to receive something, and I was waiting to receive. I was patient. Too patient. <laughs> because, you know, I'd, I'd moved on and recorded with other people. Um, you know, because after, after um, the success of, of Loving You, because that went to number one in, in the reggae charts, I then went on to record with um, D-Roy, D-Roy Witter. And I did uh, I Do Love You and a track called Friend, That's What Friends Are For. I was very much into um, Denise Williams at the time. And, uh, and again, I, I was still patient. You know, I love singing. I was still patient and I still waited. And then, and while I was in the studio doing I Do Love You, I met Dennis Bovell, because he was the engineer. And he, he said to me, you know, at the end of this session, I've got this song that I've written and I want to play it to you. I want you to tell me if you like it. And I thought, well, here we go again. You know, but I'm still patient and I'm still waiting for that day when things start to happen. So he played me this song on the guitar and he said, you know, what do you think? And I said, it's right. You know, in an English way, it's fine, it's good, it's nice. And um, I recorded Silly Games with Dennis Bovell. And then the next thing I knew, I was catapulted into the pop charts without even realising that that was even going to happen. I don't even know how it happened because it had sort of circulated in the, in the community then for about six months it was being played. And uh, Let's just stop you there, just for one moment. So we've gone from... The first introduction of the studio where you're actually just sitting on the floor in the corner. Yeah, eating a kebab. <laughs> As you do. Um, to developing a bit of a name, because to go from one producer to the next, it meant that you did something sufficiently well for them to want you even on their record. Mm -mm. Um, just explain what kind of peer group you existed in? Are you in a large group? Are you in a small group of people that go fantastic, Jenna? Or are you mostly on your own? I was mostly on my own. I mean, I, I had a, a good friend, my good friend from school, Sonia. Um, a couple of friends, but I didn't move in a pack. I wasn't a raver. I was quite happy to be at home most of the time. So I was kind of... I didn't, you know, I wasn't in a, a, in a situation where I had a big peer group around me or anyone that I could sound off on about things. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it was, you know, decisions that I made, I kind of made on my own or, you know, I might pass it by Sonia or whatever, but I didn't have a big peer group as such. So when each of these records um, developed some kind of audience around them, this is the previous producers to... Um, city games. Mm. In terms of feedback, it's a small circle that feeds back to you, look, this is good, this is working really well. 
Yeah, or there was Black Echoes. I used to, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, just, I used to buy Black Echoes to see how far up the charts or how low down the charts it was. It was that kind of thing, really, more so than anything. You're almost a spectator when it comes to your own success. This is small success at the moment, but you're a bit of a spectator. You're almost dipping in and then going back to your reality. Yeah. And dipping in again. Yeah, absolutely. It was a bit like that. I wasn't, I wasn't living the life of a of an artist, so to speak. So, in the lead up to um, Silly Games uh, and meeting Dennis Boulevard, you won't know who he is or his history in any great detail either. He's no. just another producer. Of this That's program. right. Yeah. So, based on the experience of previous producers, um, was he any more or any less important meeting Dennis Boulevard? He was talented, and I could see that. Whereas, you know, D-Roy, he was a mechanic, I think. He wasn't, he, I don't think he had any other connection with music other than that he produced tracks. Um, and, and, and being in the studio with him, it's not like he could say to me, oh, Janet, no, you need to do the harmony like this, or you need to sing it like that. There was none of that. All I used to get was, like, get on with it, time is money, do you know what I mean? It was that kind of thing, which wasn't very helpful. But so, again, it's like I go into the studio to do stuff and I'm kind of on my own. So, would it, again, be fair to say that you, to, up to this point, you're existing on raw talent. You come in, you did what you did, mm. and they went, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I'm coming from a background where I was the eldest of six children, my mum was a stay-at-home mum, so it was just my dad working. So I never sort of had singing lessons or went to drama school or did anything. like I didn't do anything like that. Everything that I did, it, it was just what was inside of me kind of thing. So with the introduction or the meeting with Dennis Bebeau, how did this whole uh, singer-producer uh, relationship differ? How is it different? Because he could sing. He could say to me, Janet, don't sing that harmony, try this one. So I could see that he had a musicality. And also, just the way he operated in the studio, he was, he was very animated. He was um, excited by what he was doing. He was, you know, just look, watching him on the, on the mixing desk. He was, you know, it was a, that was a show in itself. You know, he was, he was, he was awesome. So at this point, you're getting more animated about this production, let's say. Well, I could see that this production was a production as opposed to me just being put in the studio and saying, sing that song. It, it was a different experience, you know. So let's move into the song is produced. What happens next? What happens next is they do like a, 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 a what do they call it then? Was it a dub plate? No, it wasn't a dub plate. Was it a dub plate? And they'd play it on a sound system. And so Sir George was a sound system that used to play Lover's Rock tunes. And they apparently played that to death. Now, I don't know that because I, I never ever went where Sir George was playing. But my first album, because Silly Games was part of an album, Capricorn Woman album, and they played those tracks. So people knew those tracks before they actually came out on the physical um, on the physical album once the album was finished. So, 
Um, let's just back up slightly. So we talk about the writing of the single, and suddenly there's an album. So in terms of recording, was there a series of tracks recorded up front that would constitute an album? They one were. of which was Silly Games, or was it Silly Games as a first track? Silly Games, I think, I think Silly Games came first, and then I wrote the rest of the album bar one song, bar two, Silly Games, and a track called um, Can't Give It Up, which was written by John Kapai. But all the other tunes on the, on the album was written by myself. Okay, so Silly Games was written, produced, and released before the other tracks on the album came, came it, together. Yeah, yeah. So just take us through that period of the release of Silly Games, what happens uh, before you start writing the other tracks? So, back in the day, there would have been a process of recording the songs, perhaps a couple of versions would be created of that track, released on pre-release and gone out to key sound system people, played on the sound systems yeah. to pre-promote. Some of them were even played before they were actually, you know, there might have been a guide vocal on some of them, and, 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 they had, and the harmonies hadn't been put on yet, but they were still being played, you know, the, the pre-releases. But I got to a point where I thought, you know what, I think I've been really patient and my patience started to run out. And so when I was doing the album, I decided I'm not doing this anymore. And said, I'm not going to do any more until we sort things out properly, the way things are supposed to be sorted out, business-wise. But let's just go back slightly because we keep going to the album. Oh, okay. What happens to silly games. I mean, and I say this in the context of what we haven't covered yet is, was it successful? Oh, okay. So, you meet with Dennis, you feel it's a different approach to production, which yeah. is much more positive. And much more professional, else, yeah. Much more professional, um, and the track comes out. Just take us through how that track appears in the public space. So the track, um, come, the, the, the track comes out, it's, it's originally released on the Arawak label and as I said it kind of circulated in the, in the community for about six months or so and did very well and obviously it was number one in all the reggae charts. Um, I won awards for th that track in 1979 so I got best 7-inch single that year, best 12-inch single that year best singer that year. I think that was a Tony Williams award show. Um, and then this track just kind of blows up and gets into the pop charts and it's sort of, I think it entered, I think I was alerted when it got to number 22 or something and I was told we need you to come and do Top of the Pops. Now Top of the Pops, I was the biggest Top of the Pops fan. I used to buy um, this magazine called Disco 45 that had all the lyrics in there and every week, plus I had a, a VHS that I used to put into, um, into the, 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 the recorder waiting for the, any black artist that came in. It had, yeah, and it went on. There's a black person on TV! It was one of those kind of things. And um, 
I couldn't believe it when I was told that, I was on holiday, I think, and I was told I needed to come back because they want you to go on top of the pops. And I said, don't be silly. It's true, Kay, you need to come back. I was like, what?
Were you still working at this point? I was. By this time, I'd left Bronio Vickers and I was working for Xerox, another big photocopying company. And um, they, you know, my, my boss was really, he was really nice actually. I worked for the, I was a, the, person, the secretary for the personnel director. And he was into an amateur dramatics, so he was like, he was so excited for me. So I got all the time off that I needed to do what I had to do. And um, I remember turning up to Top of the Pops by myself, and it was scary. Oh, stop there. You turned up to Top of the Pops by yourself? By myself. So In a cab, by myself. So where is... Where is the management infrastructure, the support from the label at this point? Um, and what we want to get to here is the reality of that period, of the time period of working in the industry. So yeah. you're at work, the job's giving you time off, you're on holiday, you hear that you're in the charts, <laughs> you're doing well. It's all bizarre. And then you get a call for Top of the Pops. And for you, it's perfectly normal just to rock up in a cab by yourself. No, that wasn't normal. <laughs> that wasn't normal at all. But I didn't, you know, it all happened so fast. I didn't really have a, a chance to digest anything. I just went along with it. You know, I just, you know, I just, I just did what I had to do. And, you know, I have to say as well is that as a child, I was very, um, very, very, very shy, cripplingly shy. In my teens, I was cripplingly shy, you know. And I wasn't sure how I was going to cope with any of this. Even in the, doing the recordings, I didn't, I don't really know how I got through, you know, people listening to me sing, because my parents never heard me sing, ever. I never sang in the house. They never, you know, my mum was one of these women that your children are to be seen but not heard. So I never, you know, practised singing around my house and belting out, you know, songs. I didn't do that. So the first time your parents are going to actually witness what you've been up to, kind of yeah. covertly, yeah. is on television. Is on television. That's the f I think that's the first time that I actually um, performed professionally in a professional capacity because I didn't do shows or PAs or anything like that at that time. So that was my first experience of performing in front of a proper audience, a paying audience then. Um, can you just take us through getting out of the cab then to being on stage at top, on top of Pops? Well, well, the cab dropped you off at the, in the, in the, by the uh, main doors and then somebody came down to meet me to take me to my dressing room and they said, oh, we're going to send you to makeup. And I was like, makeup? I don't wear makeup. Oh, but you need to wear makeup. No, I don't wear makeup. I, I wear lip gloss and I refused to wear the makeup. I didn't wear any makeup. So when you see Top of the Pops on my first performance where I wear the sparkly black scarf and the little pink outfit, I wasn't wearing anything other than lip gloss. And I remember when I went into the studio and they said to me, um, right Janet, we just want you to mime this song. We're going to put on the track and we want you to mime it. I said, mime? What's mime? I don't know how to mime. I can't mime. Why can't I just sing it? I said, if I mime, supposing my mouth moves in the wrong way, I, I, don't, I don't know what mime, I don't know how to mime, I'm sorry. I need to do this for real. And so they, I think they were a little bit put out because then they had to mic up and do all those things and they didn't really want to do that. 
Um, so I sang live the first time. I sang live the second time. The second time they insisted that I wear the makeup. And I remember I bought myself this skull cap with the beads and I had lipstick on and I hated the look of my face because I just wasn't used to seeing myself made up like that because just, you know, it wasn't something I did. And then I, they also invited me to do the Christmas show as well. And on the Christmas show, that was the one I had to mime on that one because they weren't miking anybody up for that. Everybody had to mime on that show. So. You're working and you have to make a decision now to invest more time in either writing, which is new, writing new songs. Uh, there's the opportunity to do an album now to support the success of the single. How does that work? Because you've not written an album before. No, I think I was... I was writing it just before it, you know, the whole Top of the Pops thing blew up. Um, but I wasn't happy because on a business sense, things weren't working the way I thought. And, and with the success of the track the way it was, I was expecting now that things would be the way that they're supposed to be and things well, would start to mean? work. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, royalty statements coming through. Because prior to that, I'd never seen a royalty statement. But, but you say you're expecting royalty statements. Did you know about royalties? Yeah. Well, no, I didn't know how it worked. But I knew that there had to be some kind of, you know, there's got to be some kind of payment system somewhere along the line. I just didn't know how it worked. Um, and I, and there, was no, there was no royalty statement with Loving You, there was no royalty statements with um, uh, I Do Love You, there was no royalty statements from Feel No Way, not Feel No Way, um, That's What Friends Are For. I also did a track with um, Clem Boucher, which was um, Louisa's um, producer. I did a track called Silhouette. Um, so now when the, with, with the, the, the whole TV thing, you're thinking, well... Money's been made this time. It can't, there's no excuse that, well, there's no money's been made. Money's been made this time, so where's the royalties? You know? so, let me ask you a question on that front before we move on. Um, you are confident you're supposed to get paid for your contribution. Absolutely. There are no rewards coming back. What do you actually do to challenge that at this time? Uh, well, you talk to the people concerned. Um, and when that doesn't work, you know, you decide, well, am I going to move on? And am I going to continue doing this? Because is it, is it worth continuing? You know, all these things. So, I, you know, the album had started and it got to a point where I just thought, you know what, I'm not even going to finish this. So some of the tracks weren't completed, um, but it was, it, was, it was good enough for it to have been released, so it was released. Um, and the, the, the album came out, it was called Capricorn Woman at the time. Later on, they repackaged it and it was called Silly Games and, you know, it's, you know it just got repackaged. So anyway, I kind of um, lost the will to live. No, I kind of... <laughs> I kind of lost confidence with all of that and I, I didn't leave my job, I stayed in my job and it wasn't until um, one day I went on the set of a movie that was being made called Babylon 
and I went there with with um, Aswad because they did the music for the for the film, and I met Victor Romero Evans. Now, Arawak had just opened a record shop, and I was in the record shop doing a signing. And Victor came in, and I, I decided I wanted to go into acting. So I thought, well, he's an actor. Let me ask him. He must know, because I don't know what to do. So I asked him, how do I get into acting? Do I need to go to drama school? What do I need to do? And he said, well, funny you should say that, because I'm about to start doing a play um, with, our, with my theatre company, the Black Theatre Cooperatives. Um, and we're looking for one part. There's one part left to, to, to cast for a young singer female singer. I'll contact the uh, director and I'll see if I can get you an audition. I thought, oh my God, an audition. I never get through these auditions. So he did that. I went for the audition and I got the part. Now that probably, that was because of the, 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 the success of Silly Games and they just hired me anyway. And I got into acting. When I got into acting and doing plays and going on tour, that was when I left my job because at that point I was actually being paid for doing something artistic. So if we look at moving into um, this new acting space, can you give us a rough timeline between Silly Games and the audition I think I went up for that audition in 1980. So I think Silly Games was in the... Uh, the to whole Top of the Pops thing happened, I think, in July 79. And the acting thing happened six months later. So I got the part in that play and we toured it throughout Europe. So it was at the point when we were going to start touring. Well, actually, the point when we started rehearsing, because I couldn't go to work for, for three weeks of, of four weeks of the rehearsal time. So it was at that point that I gave up my job. Um, and as I said, my, my boss was, you know, he understood all that because he was into drama anyway. So as much as they were sorry to see me go, um, <laughs> they, you know, I left gracefully and I could have come back if I wanted to. Um, and that, it was at that point that I gave up my daytime job. It wasn't so, for music, it was actually once I got into the drama thing. Was there an, uh, a confidence there now that you would get paid because you're giving up the job that allowed you to make that decision? Or are you driven by passion at this point? No, 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 I knew I was going to get paid. Um, it was weekly pay, um, it was done properly, and I was like, you know, all in my mind I just kept saying, well, why can't the music industry be like this? Well, this, maybe this is where I need to be, maybe this is what I need to be doing and not the music, because with the music it's just not, it's not happening for me, do you know what I mean? Um, so I continued doing drama, continued doing plays, continued touring, and then one day we were approached by um, Channel 4. When Channel 4 just started, we were approached by the head of comedy at Channel 4 um, to come up with an idea for a, t a TV sitcom. So they paid us for four weeks to go into a rehearsal space. This is the Black Theatre Cooperatives I'm talking about. So there was, there was about six of us. Um, and to go in and workshop an idea for a, for, a, for a sitcom. And we came up with a few ideas, and then the, the one that was whittled down was the family idea, which was called No Problem, which was the first British black... We were the first British black um, theatre company to put on um, uh, our own sitcom on TV, created by ourselves.
When I was growing up, you know, we, we not only did we have lovers rock, but we had the roots music as well, and that that music, you know, we lo we love everything, but the roots music was spiritually uplifting, and it really was, and that is what is missing from our music now. It's like, what has happened to our reggae music? We need to get back to how it used to be. Um, and I feel that the music now, we don't, have that spirit, we don't have that spirituality in our music like we used to. And, it, and music affects people, it affects your being, it affects how you behave, it affects everything about you. And because we don't have that kind of spirituality now, for the youngsters growing up now, they don't have that. And, and, and we see that in the way that they're behaving and the way that society is going. We need to, we need to come back to our roots. 
Would it be fair to say that, and we've just got a couple of questions left, would it be fair to say that if we go back to that period where you started out, there was more of a direct relationship to church, to religion, that found its way to the music? Yeah. And that impacted uh, whether people resisted it or embraced it, but it impacted on a certain mindset around the music. Would you say that that has changed a lot? It has changed a hell of a lot because there is no spirit, spirit, spirituality in the music anymore with the dance hall that we have now it, it, it you know it's all sexual i think you know the dance hall it's all about sex um and even with the even with the the the, the, the what i used to say that the, the rustlers that used to make music back in the day their music was spiritually uplifting but even the ones today, are they not, you're not getting that. I'm not getting that anymore. I'm, not, I'm, I'm not, just not getting that anymore. And which means the kids are not getting it. And when the kids are not getting it, they go into other, they, 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 they search for their spirituality in other places. And that's whether that's, you know, having the most jewelry or having the most money. It's all about money. It's not about self anymore. It's not about... Next year is 50 years of reggae. <sighs> And uh, your contribution has moved something that's happened in the UK in terms of Lovers Rock into an international space. So when you look back now, you think of key moments, highlights in your career, which is ongoing. What would those key highlights be, is the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, um, if you're going to impart any advice to someone entering the industry now, what would it be based on key moments in your career? Okay, so key highlights would be, the first one would be my first recording experience because that was my first recording experience. And then moving on in the timeline to the whole Top of the Pops thing, me being a fan of the show and then actually being on it was like bizarre. And then the next, then the next key key thing was actually being able to get into a, a, an acting um, career that I never thought I would ever do, but did, and and taking it from theatre and into TV, you know, that I never thought that would happen, but it did, and then signing my first record deal, not in this country, but right on the other side of the world, in Japan. Sony Music Japan, and I um, recorded like five or six albums over a period of 12, about 12 years, um, and performing in Japan to thousands upon thousands, you know, like arenas, thousands upon thousands of people. I couldn't believe it. The first time I went there, um, I, was, I was singing in, in, in this big, arena and I noticed a lot of people with white hankies and I was thinking everybody in here has got a cold until when I went out after the show to, 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 to meet people they were actually crying because they were so moved by the music and that had never happened to me before and I was like that is amazing that is like really and, and back then I mean I'm talking about the 19 early 90s 91, 92. So most of the people in Japan, they didn't speak English. Everywhere I went, I had an interpreter. But 
music is something that you don't need an interpreter. Music is something that translates no matter what language, you know. And that was a fantastic experience and, and one of my top highlights of my career was going there for the first time. You know, and, and even signing that contract, I thought that was never going to happen because at the time when I got the, when I got the contract, they were over there, I was over here, and I was eight months pregnant. And I didn't tell them because I thought, anyhow I tell these, this record company that I'm about to drop a baby, they're, they're not going to sign me. And I signed the contract and then they said, oh, we, want, we need to meet you. And I went to meet them at the, the Royal Garden Hotel in Kensington and I walked in. I hobbled in and they couldn't believe it. And I was like, <laughs> but it worked, you know, and, and I'm so, I was so happy for that experience. So, looking back, do you feel those opportunities exist in the same way today as they did back then? I think the whole thing has turned upside down on its head now. It's, it's so different now. I mean, with social media, with the whole YouTube thing, um, with the whole um, computer-generated music, you know, anybody can have a studio in their home. So now, it, it's, a, it's a different experience. Anybody can make it now. All you, all you need is a computer, a good microphone, you go in, you do what you've got to do, you put it on YouTube, you know, it could go viral, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're the biggest thing out there. Do you know what I mean? It, you can sell your own music online, open your own online store. It's a different thing. You, don't, you can be a one-man band now where you couldn't do that back in the day. So here's the last question. Based on your wealth of experience, would you advise or how would you advise a 17-year-old black British female uh, who's saying, I want to enter the music industry? How would you advise this person? Don't. Save yourself. No, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> I would say, finish your education, go to college, go to university and do whatever it is that you, so if it is, you know, music that you want to do, go and learn as much as you can learn so that you can learn the business side of things too because that's what I didn't have. I didn't have any business acumen at all. Go and learn all of that stuff. And then when you finish that, if, you're, if you want to be a one-man band, because you can, if you've got all that behind you and you've got all that business sense behind you, you can manage yourself, you can do what you've got to do, but you need the education. First, that's what I would say. And get yourself a good lawyer.
Ooh. Ooh.